Hello and welcome to the Licensed to Queer podcast, where we're on a mission to uncover why James Bond appeals so much to LGBTQ plus people. Why not see 007 from a different angle? Hi, Kim. Hello. You're looking very sunny today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm trying Matt. to bring See, we, I, I see. I always, and I, I'm, I swear, I don't do this consciously, but yeah. every time I meet you, I try to match the book that you're, <laughs> um, you're releasing. So I went, <laughs> um, I went um, gold and um, black and white for Double or Nothing's launch. Yes. Um, back here, and now <laughs> I've gone for green. There you go. And I've got two copies of the book we're talking about today. Um, I know you sent me this months before the book was published, but it. Did it did the, did the rounds through Royal Mail and didn't actually event arrive for months later, but the proof version. So you match the proof, or yes. well, I'm kind of half. I'm kind of matching both. <laughs> this is good. We need to do I like know. a. I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never not color coordinated. Let's put it that way. Oh, that's so, such a good um, motto. <laughs> exactly. So um, today, um, I know we'll end up talking about James Bond at some point, because we always end up doing, even when we don't set out to talk about James Bond. But we are talking, um, for the most part, around uh, A Wild and True Relation, which if people have... When when was it? If it was released while I was taking a trip to Japan, wasn't it? Yeah. So I, I actually read, I actually messaged you as soon as I landed and because I'd read the first half and I was just like, I've just read the first half of your book on my Kindle uh, <laughs> on the way back from Japan. Yes, it was released while I was I was away there and I, I did race through the first half. I mean, it's a long flight back from Tokyo, but I raced through the first half on that flight and then raced through the second half when I came back. So, which is, you know, I'm not bragging here or anything, but it is a pretty chunky book. Yeah, that is impressive. It's a lot it's, of work. It's in that book. Yeah, five <laughs> plus pages. So, uh, yeah, it's been out a few months now. So if people haven't read A Wild and True Relation, I urge you to read this book because um, we I think it's fairly safe to say we will probably we're not going to spoil the ending or anything, but we will talk a lot about this book and its characters and things. So if you want to go in completely innocent and fresh, then um, then uh, then uh, then then pick it up, read it and perhaps come back to it. Or this might whet your appetite to actually read it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm aware that we're recording this in, and this will also go out during uh, Pride Month. So uh, it's June. And we were actually having a chat the other day, weren't we, about um, the extent to which, the, in fact, you messaged me and said, is this a queer book? And I think my response was, in capital letters, it is awesomely queer. <laughs> um, something along those lines. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm interested to talk about that. And I know that you're interested to kind of, Talk about things that you haven't had a chance to talk about in some of the other interviews around this book, including some of the personal qualities to it. Uh, so that's that's really exciting. I'm really looking forward to getting stuck in stuck into it. Um, so let let's start. I mean, let's start with the queer thing because um, why did I think this was awesomely queer? Because it is. I mean, you've actually got you've actually got some queer characters in here. Well, LGBTQ identifying. You know, let's. Okay, just to back up for a sec, you know, most of the terms that we use today, like um, lesbian, um, gay, bisexual, most of those terms have been around for only around 100, 150 years, even like homosexual, heterosexual. But you you have characters who are in same sex relationships and you also have question. You also have um, several characters who um, kind of, uh, yeah, they don't they don't subscribe to the gender binary. Mm. But as 
as I think, and it's brilliant that your book and um, it, it does this. It kind of dr- makes people aware that people like that have always existed, which mm. is which is often a misconception. So what kind of inspired you to, I mean, do you want to talk about those particular characters and why you put like Nathan, love Nathan, why, why do you, why do you have those characters in your book? Yeah, absolutely. It was really interesting when I, um, when I messaged you and said, would you consider this a queer book? Mm. I was thinking a lot about um, the, almost the labels that become attached to a book after you publish it because uh, Virago, uh, uh, my publisher, including a one true relation in their Pride celebrations, which I am very proud of. Um, but it's funny when you're writing something, you're not kind of thinking about the labels it fits under. You're you're writing yeah. from a very organic, subconscious place. Yeah. And then it goes out in the world and you see how other people receive it. And, and that's part of the really exciting thing about uh, bringing a book out because it becomes not just yours. It becomes part of other people's lives. Um, but it for me, it's been a very big part of my life. I've been writing it for, uh, well, 14 years now, um, on and off. Obviously, some other things happened in between, including James Bond. Uh, it was supposed to be my first novel and, you know, um, you know, life took a few unexpected turns. And it did come from quite a personal place, really. So it's, for those who haven't had a chance to read it yet or read about it, um, it's set in the early 18th century. It opens on the night of the Great Storm in Devon in 1703 with smuggling captain Tom West coming ashore in a rage because he believes his lover Grace has betrayed him to the revenue. And following a confrontation, she is left dead. That's the first chapter, so it's not too much of a spoiler. And he takes her daughter Molly to raise as a boy aboard his ship under the name Orlando. And we have that main adventure of Molly growing up um, and discovering the truth of her origins. And then we have these interleaving sections with real life historical figures like Charles Dickens and George Eliot, Hester Thrale and Dr. Johnson, who come together to solve the mystery of Molly's life over the centuries. And it came to me actually on a Devon beach, the the beach that it opens on. Um, I was walking along and I saw this boathouse and I began to think of this idea of this smuggler. And I, I initially wrote the first chapter as a short story, entirely in 18th century Devonshire dialect, which nobody understood, uh, unsurprisingly. So I rewrote it in modern English and then kept going and and kept following the story. And a lot of the ideas in it, and you were talking about um, characters who don't subscribe to sort of gender binaries, like Molly, who's um, raised as a boy and lives as Orlando and Molly. Um, And then, of course, characters like Nathan, who's having to hide his sexuality on the ship. A lot of that came from my childhood I suppose growing up as what was then called a tomboy um which you know probably we would use different words today um but I've always had short hair and I've always loved things that weren't considered appropriate for girls so James Bond superheroes football and I had my hair short I had my head shaved at one point actually uh, when I was um, my mom was very, very nice, and I came home with a bit of a shock. Shaved my head. Uh, she, she's imagine Ellie's reaction. Well, yeah. actually, you know, having got to know your mom a bit, um, I think she'd have probably been cool with it, was she? She was very cool. Yeah, she was like, "That's what you want. That's fine." A lot of people <laughs> would come up to her and say, "I'm so sorry about your child," because they thought I had leukemia or something, and she'd say, "No, she, she just wanted a shaved head." <laughs> Um, the shaved head did you just decide one day I want to see what I look like with no hair yeah well I was quite punky in primary school um I had a Sid Vicious face and uh I I would always wear um what would be 
considered then as boys clothes I mean all of these ideas are so ridiculous you know what I was wearing was an arsenal top and jeans why should that be considered boys clothes but but it was and people would perceive me as a boy so that was something that's that's really fed into this book that for a lot of my childhood years people who met me would think I was a boy and treat me as a boy and so I had this sort of funny experience of learning what it was like Mm -hmm. to to be a boy in the world and to be treated as a boy and then learning what it was like when people realized you that I was a girl Ah. and suddenly the well then you shouldn't be playing football or well then why do you like action figurines so much or you know that that suddenly that shift um so I think that kind of taught me a lot about how people perceive and police gender Mm -hmm. and how much it's constructed by society rather than something that's sort of natural yeah if you see what I mean as you're talking it made me think of I'm trying I can't remember the name of it there was a famous experiment where they um a load of uh, some researchers tested this out by um allowing babies to climb slopes hmm. okay <laughs> as you do and what Great. they did is they had to give them an activity to do where there was kind of a slight element of risk involved. Mm. So climbing a slope was about as risky as I think the ethics would allow that particular right. experiment. And um, they let these babies climb the slopes and then they had these onlookers. Um, I think they were people who were parents themselves, but they weren't obviously their children. And then they were like playing with the kids and then uh, letting the babies climb these slopes, ever increasing the height of these slopes. But then it's a weird experiment, I know. (laughs) Essentially, what happened then is they didn't tell any of the adults involved whether the kids were boys or girls. Mm. As soon as they told the um, adults involved that some which children were girls, they Mm. were like, oh, no, let's reduce the level of the slope, the incline, because it's too risky for a girl to do. They're not strong enough to do it. Whereas the boys, they were like, yeah, come on, you know get moving um, exactly, so, yeah. um that's a very crude encapsulation of what i'm sure was a very reliable study but that's that is that i always have that in my head when mm. i'm thinking about are you i i'll be honest i we you know we've got three cats and two of them are boys and one's a girl and i have to sometimes fight um even even i have to fight sometimes thinking um the girl won't be um, won't be able to hold her own in a fight in a scrap mm. I mean, she does. She she's a born <laughs> fighter. She will paste her brothers. Uh, you know, if they try anything, she gives way more than she gets. Yeah. But there is part of me, with, unlike with the boys, I'm just thinking, oh, you know, they might get hurt. With her, I'm just like, oh, she might get hurt. So it is something yeah. that's kind of we're socially conditioned, aren't we? Mm, exactly. And I think for me as a kid, it was it was very. Um, obvious that social conditioning because I would experience it on both sides and I would experience the change people underwent when they when they realized I was a girl um but also the sheer disbelief amazing how many people didn't believe I was a girl um Mm. I would have so I went to a girl's school secondary school I would have supply teachers try and force me to leave the school because they thought I was a boy from the boys school next door and that this was a prank oh my god I was I you know was like playing a joke and it didn't matter how much I said or my friends said, she's a girl. She just has short hair. Uh, but they just wouldn't believe me. And that kind of thing happened all the time to me as a kid. Um, because people couldn't see past, but you have short hair and you're dressing in what I perceive to be uh, boys' clothes. Um, and so that, and, you know, certain sort of amount of bullying and things went along with that too. Um, but just that kind of experience of, um, I suppose, being 
different in some way um or people treating me as if I was different um I think a lot of that fed into the writing of Molly and her um experience of almost performing gender um obviously transposed into the 18th century but people have been performing you know at that term I believe originated with Judith Butler the idea of of gender performativity the whole Mm. idea that all of gender is a performance Mm. but people will have been performing gender a long time before you know for thousands of years before that term even came into being and I think that's why that's why I replied to your message saying it's awesomely queer because yes you do have a few people who are same-sex attracted and even with the kind of main character there's um there's some ambiguity around sexual orientation as well which i found really enjoyable as well as having two two explicitly um what we'd nowadays call gay characters mm. but it was that very and i find this in all of your books you know including your bomb book including testament there is that um there is that questioning of a lot of you know um a lot of established dogma ideas and all that stuff full stop but particularly around gender Mm. now that you've shared that I kind of understand where that comes from I suppose in a sense it was go back to my earlier question it's kind of like you didn't try to put that in the book the challenge would have probably to keep that out of the book yes absolutely and it's funny those those moments where you draw from um real life without necessarily a lot of writing is so unconscious and you you yeah I think as a writer you have an internal question that needs to be answered and it's a compulsion to answer it and the book helps you answer it but for a long time during the writing process you couldn't tell people necessarily this is the question I'm asking myself and this is how I'm answering it but you but you will draw on your own life experiences and I remember with Testament actually there's one element of the book where my editor said um about one of the characters relationships um uh, relationship dynamic with their family my editor said this is just a bit unrealistic I can't really see this happening in a family um it's just not very believable <laughs> I remember laughing and be like that's the one bit that's true <laughs> you know wow uh, so there's those things that you that you write from and you're almost you're kind of exorcising um yeah. onto the page um and I think certainly with with Molly's character in particular a lot of those experiences that I had as a kid went into shaping the journey that she goes on through the book around trying to um, have ownership over her identity and her future, because she's been through Tom taking her onto the ship and disguising her as a boy. She's suddenly got these much broader horizons and she really worships Tom and she looks up to him and thinks, you know, maybe one day I can have a, I can have a ship of my own and I could have this power that he has, but it's on a knife's edge because as soon as she hits puberty or as soon as somebody discovers what's um what sort of deception has been practiced she'll be forced back into a woman's life and out of um this power that she's been given to taste so there's a there's a real kind of internal and external battle for molly's future going on through the novel i think that fear of discovery is what propelled me so quickly through the book to be Mm. honest probably one of the elements that resonated most with me um, so I've never lived on a ship in the uh, 18th century, <laughs> but, you know, obviously I did spend a large proportion of my life kind of thinking, oh God, at some point, you know, I'm going to have to kind of grow up. And that means mm. I, in fact, since I didn't even want to grow up in a sense, because it, it would kind of end up, I would have to kind of force 
force the the choice well not even a choice but I'd have to kind of tell people who I was sort of thing or through life being really really miserable uh which you know I think deep down I thought I wasn't going to let myself do that but it's like at what point do you decide enough's enough Mm. and I think waiting that's that's where a lot of the suspense of wild and true comes from um for me I don't know if you've heard that from any other readers Mm, that's really interesting um I haven't actually put that way um but I I think it makes total sense and that idea of um one's identity almost being a ticking time bomb but not through our own making yeah because of social and cultural pressures um and that sense of if I if I show people who I really am will I be destroyed for it or will I be accepted or will I be able to create a new world in which I am accepted all of those questions swirl around Molly through the book yeah I, I I totally get that going um talking about what you're saying about gender performativity there's there's there are elements of your book and not just this book but your other books um which you know if one were in a, of an ignorant frame of mind uh might one might and I know that you faced a little bit of this when you took on the Bond gig initially, it's like a woman. I can't help but do the Roger Moore in Moonraker voice again. Yes. A woman. Uh, take a woman. But, you know, this is a book written by a woman. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> um, you know, and you've got elements in there which some people might um, might kind of find uh, surprising. Again, if they've not read many books written by women uh, in recent years, because I can think of other women who pepper their books with um, some. Well, I wrote it down in my notes as very salty language. You know, yeah. because there's that, there's that there's that social convention of women don't use that kind of mm. language. Uh, mm. But I and I think it, it stood out for me particularly in your book because it is period set. But of course, people have been using salty language. You know, the c word goes back eight hundred years. The yeah. f word goes back even longer. You know, you, you these words have been around. But because I think probably. Again, we've been conditioned perhaps by cinema more than anything, which has always been rather censorious about swearing and, you know, literature as well. I think we forget that people people turn the air blue um, mm. for as long as human beings have been around. Absolutely. So did you delight in putting some of the some of that salty language in the book? Yeah, very much so. Um, my my agent's assistant um who so when people are becoming agents they're first of all they're an assistant and they kind of have a go at editing your book um for their own uh training almost mm-hmm. and so she sent me her notes which were really lovely um and the, the top note was um I think there's more literary dick jokes in this book than any I've ever encountered which I was very proud of um but certainly you know it's a it's a community of smugglers in the 18th century you know they're not going to be um period and I had a lot of fun researching swear words and curses from the time which were a lot more religious um so a lot of kind of god's teeth god's eyes god's blood all of those things uh, which i yeah enjoyed peppering throughout that's the one i always have to explain to students if i've taught shakespeare it's yeah. uh, blood it's like god's <laughs> blood so why is that a swear word because people yeah. are religious you know yeah yeah exactly and um you know I collect dictionaries and had a lot of fun you know going back through um Dr Johnson's dictionary and and uh picking through word meanings from that time um and actually the word adventure which really sits at the heart of this novel because it is a kind of um take on the 18th century adventure novel uh in, in in this era, if you asked a man about his adventures, tell me about your adventures, it would mean tell me about your travels or tell me about the things you've hazarded or, or, or risked. 
um if you said to a woman tell me about your adventures oh, i'm guessing already yeah. what this might mean yeah. <laughs> you were asking tell me about your exploits in bed yes that, that was all in bed i just say it was a terrible insult um and a lady of adventure was a prostitute so you can really see the gender lines and that's something that i was really interested in getting into with the novel especially in the interleaving sections where i have these uh, real life historical writers um kind of having these conversations and debates around genre and gender and um robert louis stevenson is a great example because he in some ways invented the adventure novel as we see it now you know the sort of treasure island kidnapped kind of story um and he came up with the story of treasure island on a very rainy uh, scottish holiday with his stepson he needed to entertain his stepson so he came up with this story and they came up with some rules together and the the rules were uh, that it was a boy's story and that women were to be excluded. So you can really see there in this, you know, his his writing and his success and the Victorian magazine craze aimed at newly literate boys. You can see how this idea of policing gender and a gender division has always existed in the idea of the adventure, the quest, who gets to go on the journey. I always hated the term boy's own adventure. Me too. <laughs> I do wonder now you've said that I didn't realize that Stevenson was quite because both you and I are, are Stevenson admirers yes um and um uh and when I when I popped up to Edinburgh um for for the launch of this book funny enough I, I enjoyed going to the Robert Louis Stevenson Museum but I didn't realize that he was yeah that he kind of codified mm. what you meant and that there was that gender dimension baked into it yeah absolutely and that um sort of craze of you know publishing for boys around that time um, it still stays with us. Part yeah. of the inspiration for this book was when um, Penguin reissued a very sumptuously beautiful um, series of uh, classic adventure stories, and they did new illustrated covers, but they labelled it Boys' Own Stories. Um, and this was in 2008, I think it was. Um, and I just remember being so annoyed because, if, you know, feeling like, well, I love these books. And it's Arthur Conan Doyle and Robert Louis Stevenson and John Buchan and um, why I understand in the Victorian era, I understand the context of where that came from, but but do we have to hold on to it in the 21st century? Um, and and also, you know, it's, I think it was a series of 10 or 11 books, all male writers, all male heroes. And so partly with the wild and true relation, I wanted to say, well, what other heroes are there? How can we tell stories of difference and celebrate um, life that's been kept to the margins in, in literary history? Mm. No. I'm trying to, I'm racking my brains actually trying to think of an adventure story series, which has, which is well known, which has, I'm sure there will be loads out there, I know, but which has that kind of same kind of cachet as Stevenson and so forth. Mm. That has a, a woman at the centre of it. and it's, Yeah, I mean, it's not um, as, you do really see the gender divide. You have to think a little bit harder. So you've got, obviously you've got Daphne du Maurier, you've got Frenchman's Creek, you've got um, her, her amazing books. Georgette Hare but often people will see that more as romance um you know and I often think about Ina Blyton I know that mm. Famous Five has um a lot of a lot of things in the Famous Five that reflect the narrow-minded views of its time um mm. but George was a revolutionary character yes. and yeah. for me, you know, when I was growing up there were there were no other girls with short hair with islands battling smugglers uh to read about apart from George you know that was that was it 
The one that sprang to mind is for me is, uh, and I I enjoyed the famous five books as well. And I know we talked about this um, when when we talked about Bond about which ones we identify with, and it ge- definitely wasn't Julian or Dick in my case. Um, <laughs> so, but the one that I just thought of was Agatha Christie, and yeah. she, I mean, everyone thinks of Miss Marple, an older woman, but she's still having adventures traveling yes. the world, and yes, but yes, also, um, and it's just gone out of my head. But she did five books, uh, Tommy and Tuppence. I don't know if you've ever read those. Oh, yeah, yeah N or M, her yeah. sort of spy novel, as it were. Yeah, she's um, yes, um, but Tuppence, the woman in that dynamic, um, and the books follow them through from their I think early twenties until mm. they actually get married and um, and grow into middle age. The she, Tuppence is always the more active one. She has far yeah. more agency than Tommy. Tommy mm-hmm. actually usually gets kidnapped and tied to a chair or something yeah. like that. But yeah, I think that's yeah. probably the most. But again, Tommy and Tuppence aren't household names. I know Miss Marple is. Yes, yeah. yeah. And then there's Modesty Blaze, um, which is yes. sort of going yeah. more in the thriller territory. But um, Modesty Blaze, I think, I mean, obviously is a is a pop culture icon, but I think deserves to be more well known, yeah. um, often compared to Bond. And I feel like in a way that does Modesty a disservice because yeah. it, that tries to frame her as a female Bond and she's yeah. very much her own character and her own thing. She's a criminal turned spy. Um, but, but it is very much a kind of gendered genre. And you have writers today like Kate Moss kind of unpicking some of that. Um, but it was it was certainly something at the heart of a wild and true relation that I wanted to ask, well, who else gets to go on the adventure? Um, something I know you and I have talked a little bit about in the past, uh, but in relation to this specifically, is to what extent people might consider some of these choices anachronistic for something mm-hmm. that's a, very much a historical novel. Because obviously Testament includes elements um, from the, the Second World War, um, but this is kind of like the first period piece. So how conscious were you of people thinking that putting these things in might might kind of make them anachronistic. Mm. Well, what I really wanted to do, I was conscious of that because I feel like there's there's a real erasure in how we're taught history that makes the past seem as if it's always conformed to actually quite a modern, homogenous status quo when, when really I, I feel like the past is far more heterogeneous and disorderly than that um, and rebellious than that so I've always wanted to try and take those stories that have been marginalized and pull them into the center because they they were there and they weren't always even in the margins in their own time so I kind of want to change a little bit if I can how people perceive history Um, and so certainly with a character like Nathan who uh, is part of Tom's crew he's the ship's carpenter and he is very close with Molly as she's growing up um, and he's hiding his sexuality, um, but Molly kind of works it out. And Tom knows a lot of the ways that I was able to kind of research um, the almost kind of what was at stake for Nathan if, if he was found out was actually through court records um, and, you know, reading records of trials. And um, I think that, I mean, reading those records was actually very heartbreaking, but I I, I feel like for me, almost a mission of my writing is to try and shine a light on those things and to shine a light on um, the the everyday lives and loves of people outside of that kind of um, conforming status quo and to say, actually, history is a lot more interesting uh, than you might think it is. You um, you dare to give queer people happy endings. 
Yes. Yes. Which is still <laughs> alarmingly rare. Yes, it in is. In a lot of mainstream or even less mainstream fiction. Mm. And what you say there about court records, as you know, I read, I have to read a lot of queer history stuff for what I articles mm. I write, including James Bond. And um, there's there's a, there's some, in fact, I've, yeah, I've got it here. There's a, um, there's a really, really good uh, book that I've used for a few articles over the years called uh, Queer London. And Matt Holbrook, the academic who wrote that, he, um, he points this out. He's, and it's in, quite a lot of the queer history books as well um that we only really can piece together queer history from when the legal system get involved mm-hmm. and people are punished and so that inevitably ends up skewing what mm-hmm. we know of queer history and thinking oh it was all miserable and people were getting hanged until the you know early 1800s um for being accused of homosexual acts and mm-hmm. all of the rest but actually there is also a growing body of evidence now about um, people living people living quite happy lives as well. Mm. Um, I mean, there's 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 quite a lot of literature now about you know uh, queer people who, even though same sex marriage has only been around for about two de- decades, people have been getting married informally for hundreds of years. Absolutely. And, um, and that was the case on ships that you could have a kind of unofficial, and often there were um, sort of unofficial same sex marriages on yeah. ships. Um, and that ships were in some ways an alternate society that you could yes. join, particularly if you weren't in the navy. You know, the navy had its own strictures, but um, but but people were obviously subverting a lot of the time. But particularly on something like a smuggler's ship, where you are creating your own kingdom, and that was something I was interested in investigating because we've got characters like Nathan, characters like Kingston, um, who has escaped enslavement. You've got people on that ship who are attempting to find freedom Mm. but they can only really achieve it through tom west's blessing as the as the captain so he's that's part of his contradiction for me as a character that he's he's happy to have in a way um people living uh lives outside of what would be kind of culturally safe and acceptable elsewhere um but only at his say so. So there's there's still a kind a certain amount of power going on. Patriarchal control. Yeah, exactly. Um, and he and he is afraid that Nathan will be caught and will be hurt, which comes out of care for Nathan, but also comes out of I've told you to listen to me and you're not. Um, and his real struggle with 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 power essentially. Um, and I wanted through through Tom West's character to think about that Byronic hero and that archetype um, who we celebrate for violence. Mm-hmm. And that is another form of gender policing. That, that's another, you know, that's a way in which um, men are are repressed by our norms. Um, and I wanted to kind of get into that with Tom's character. There is a scene where Tom um, stands naked in front of another male character, uh, which definitely etched itself on my memory. Um <laughs> <laughs> and makes a kind of comment which isn't anything it's not even tinged with homophobia but it's it's kind of like um see anything you like kind of kind kind that's the, yeah. that's the kind of vibe from that scene yeah, and, yeah. You know, i did get the fit you know for all his faults and you know he's an endlessly fascinating character we could do a podcast series just about tom west characters <laughs> if you've not read the book brace yourself for tom west uh <laughs> in many different ways um yes um found him very attractive um but also repellent in lots of ways so he's got that 
he's got very much got that duality but he has created this as as you said it's it's um it's not even a microcosm of society, really, because it's a almost a utopian society. Mm-hmm. I think there's definitely something utopian about your ship um, mm-hmm. that sprang to mind when I was describing it to Anthony. And I know he's a he's a much bigger Star Trek fan than I am, but I know you're a huge Star Trek fan as well. So when I was describing to my husband, he was like, "Oh, it sounds a bit like a ship on Star Trek." Mm-hmm. Where you've got characters who kind of appreciate each other, and for me, yeah. I think again something that kept me really um, compelled through the book was the dynamics between this what we might call even a chosen family or found mm-hmm. family because Absolutely. there's not necessarily that much in the way of um blood relation mm-hmm. between the characters but they all they kind of work as a family was that yeah. something again you were conscious of while you were writing it Absolutely and that was um actually went into some of the thinking behind the title so in the 17th century, women would write stories of their lives, which they would say were for private circulation. But that was a that was a kind of modesty get out of publishing something um, just to say, oh, it's only it's only for my family. But really, it would be circulated very widely. And they would have these incredibly long titles that acted like blurbs. So it would be like a wild and true relation of my birth and then my time at court and then my time uh, going and traveling here and meeting this man. And, you know, so this, this whole huge long description with a lot of adjectives, a lot of bizarre, strange, wondrous, but always true. We always put the word true in there. Um, so it came from that idea of how women talk about their lives, how we are doubted, uh, the mixture of the, the wildness, fantastical nature and what, we can claim as true um but it also came from this idea of your relation who you are related to who is your family so for molly she's lost her mother very very young and tom is her whole world he's not her biological father and that was actually a really um contentious sticking point early on in the writing of this novel i was writing it at university so i was a um quite you know young undergrad age student and then took it on to my ma um and I remember my tutor and a lot of the students kept insisting he's got to be her biological father because otherwise there's no reason for him to care about her. And I just like really resisted this idea. I, I was allergic to this idea that there could be no reason for a man to care for a child that wasn't biologically his and that your family had to be your your blood relatives. I, I just like, I hate this idea. Um, and I think a lot of that is personal because my childhood was very much um, a found family, really. So I was raised by a single mum and my mum and my sister and then lots of kids in our neighbourhood whose homes weren't safe for various reasons. And so they officially or unofficially joined ours. And I call them my brothers and sisters to this day. And there was this tribe of of single mothers who were, we would call them our supply mummies, uh, who would come and look after us when my mum was working. Um, and you know, when, when my, uh, you know, just, it was just so important that when I think about family, that's what I think about. I think about those days as a kid, when we were just in and out of each other's houses and all the mums were there. Um, and that was, that was family. And, And that's why I think community is so important to me because that's where your family comes from. Um, so for me, it really is very central. Um, both in my life um, and and in the novel, I think. I yeah, I was. You probably saw my facial reactions on the podcast. You won't have picked up on that, but I was frowning <laughs> a lot when um, when you were talking about that people struggled with that 
um about the the not having any kind of biological connection mm-hmm. because as a queer person um mm-hmm. we always a lot of us talk about chosen family and actually some of us kind of value chosen family more than necessarily some of the people that we're related to mm-hmm. uh, genetically because you know sometimes queer people get um well sometimes people queer people get abandoned by their families entirely mm-hmm. cut off completely or sometimes actually the relationship is not worth not worth persevering with because it's just actually too painful on both sides mm-hmm. so for me i think that's there's so many queer elements of this book but i think that's one of the most powerful mm-hmm. for me that this book really does validate that idea of chosen family i mean i look i did look into this um for an article um kind of like to to almost get a sense of validation myself really um that there is there is nothing kind of inbuilt in human beings to love um people just because you are biologically connected it's a it's a complete and utter fallacy scientifically mm-hmm. we we all we all have an inbuilt n- um need to nurture which mm-hmm. can manifest in a multitude of different ways but it doesn't have to be people that you are connected to mm-hmm. um and that's quite liberating once you kind of get to that point yeah, very much i i hate it you made you just made me think of when um, the most recent Star Wars films were being made mm-hmm. and people were speculating right from the start. So who is, I'm sure I've got a figure of her somewhere. Here she is. There you go. I have all the all the powerful uh, women of Star Wars lined up on my bookshelf. <laughs> if you ever wondered what those figures are in the background of these videos, this is them. So this is, um, this is Rey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and right from Rey's first appearance in Force Awakens, people are going, I wonder who she's related to. Mm. And I didn't care. Well, actually, no, I did care. I didn't want her to be related to anybody. Mm, mm. And then when it turned out, and I'm going to spoil it because, um, you know, it was released several years ago now. But in the in the last film of that trilogy, when it was revealed, she was a blood relation of a character from the original films, which made no sense whatsoever. Literally not. I was so frustrated. Yes. That I just checked out of the entire movie. Absolutely. I was like, this makes no sense. And it is that I it is that really um as an unscientific idea that you and I know that film played with, you know, she's not going to become her grandfather Mm. and all that, but why did that it was so much more powerful for her not to have a blood connection with anybody else but her Mm -hmm. for her, you know, they spent essentially democratized the force because Mm -hmm. it could be anyone. You don't have to be a Skywalker or a Palpatine or whatever. Mm. I just got really annoyed. Absolutely, absolutely. Because it, it totally um makes start by by making that choice, what they're almost saying is there are royal families. Yeah. In this universe. And if you belong to one of them, you're special. And if you don't, then you're just sort of part of the masses and you don't get a story. Um, and then from a writer's perspective as well, what was so frustrating about that was that it so obviously wasn't the plan from the beginning. And I just found that so maddening. How did they, as, as somebody who is currently writing three books in a big franchise, mm-hmm. how did they set about making three Star Wars films without a plan? Just boggles my mind. <laughs> you know, It's like, why didn't somebody say, is there a character arc at any point that we're going to follow? Just, uh, oh. I suppose the saving grace is that, you know, it's very, it's so kind of obvious when you lay it out like this. She chooses not to go to the dark side. She chooses, you know, she picks the name Skywalker, even though she's not related to Skywalkers. So I suppose that is the kind of thing that reprieves it a little bit. 
Yeah. But you, you play with kind of naming conventions in your book as well, don't you? And again, I'm wary that some people, so you might want to fast forward this bit because we're probably going to, we're probably going to spoil the ending at this point. But yeah, so you, again, was that something that I know you've been writing this book for 14 years, but was that something that you'd always wanted to deal with? Well, it was a really interesting challenge having, having Molly have her first few years as Molly and as a girl being raised by her mother but a girl who does um, sort of not, um, I guess, embrace the idea of being a girl. You know, from 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 birth, she is sometimes taken for a boy. She is wanting to have adventures. She loves Tom's stories of going to sea. Um, so from birth, there's this idea of um, what life could I pursue if I didn't have the restrictions that a woman has in my time? Um but then she is she's taken by Tom and she goes under Orlando. And so there was this the question of well, what name is it going to be? Um, am I going to change her pronouns? That was something I thought about a lot. Um I am and... listening. I'm just trying to find a particular book, which I think you'll probably appreciate. Oh, go ahead. I'm trying to find if it's on the shelf here somewhere. It's definitely on here somewhere. That's uh, a nice moment. Have a guess which one I'm trying to find. You've just mentioned Orlando. Uh, <laughs> you trying to find Orlando by any chance? Trying to find Orlando. Oh, it's mixed in. I can find Mrs. Dalloway, but for some reason, <laughs> Orlando has gone walkies. I don't know where Orlando's gone. As Orlando will. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah, that's a bit. There you go. That, that is where the name eventually where I thought, okay, she's going to go under the name Orlando. And for those who don't know, Orlando is a Virginia Woolf novel. Um, it's actually my favourite Woolf novel. And it's about this character, Orlando, who's born as a man in the Elizabethan era and who changes gender through the centuries and ends up as a modern woman in 1920s London um, via being an ambassador in Constantinople and arguments with Alexander Pope and um, all of those great things. And it's one of my favourite novels because it collapses boundaries. So it collapses boundaries between genders, between time periods, um, and it shows us how much those lines are constructed rather than natural. Um, so I wanted to kind of bring Wolf into the story. Um, so gave Molly the name Orlando. And as she grows older, without wishing to do too many spoilers, but as she grows older, she kind of has more choice over what name she goes under and she chooses both. So that was kind of important to me. I didn't want, I didn't want there to be a moment where she says, I I am just Molly or I am just Orlando but rather I am me and I am both of these things and that that she doesn't want to be labeled by other people mm. she just wants to be herself yeah. uh, whatever that is um and so I wanted to have the the freedom of those names in play I love Orlando. It's annoying that I can't find it because I've tried to find the exact passage. But if you if people haven't read Orlando, you have to read Orlando. It's absolutely incredible. Yes. There's this yeah. passage where um, it was actually you saying about pronouns that mm -hmm. Virginia Woolf just switches the pronoun. Yeah. Like yeah. In, the middle of a, in the middle of a paragraph. And from yeah. this point on, we're going to use a different pronoun. Yeah, exactly. You have to go with it, folks. Bear with, you know. Yeah, yeah. And when you think about the absolute... Um, just uh, I'll try and not go on the rant but when you when you think about how 
people are being whipped into hysteria currently. Go on a rant, Kim. Go on a rant. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, about, I will. <laughs> about yeah. what pronouns somebody okay. chooses to use in their life, which is entirely a matter of their identity and their personhood. And I just, what right does anybody have to say, actually, that makes me uncomfortable? And why does it make anybody uncomfortable? you know if wolf could be doing it then if we could for hundreds and hundreds of years for all of humanity i would i would bet this hasn't been a simple matter so why why people now feel they have any right to say it makes me uncomfortable and therefore you should change how you live i just i just makes me very angry and it's the language reinforces the binary which (laughs) i know you and i are always at risk of going down a grammatical um, uh, tangent. Uh, but, you know, yeah, don't, don't get me started on pronouns. I, I love those posts that people put online about, um, you know, I don't agree with using pronouns. And it's just mm. like, well, you just started that sentence with one. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> do you actually know what a pronoun is? You know, could do with a bit of a grammar lesson here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Before we get on to lessons in humanity, uh, let's start with the grammar. Um, yeah, and it worked, you know, I, I went back and forth on it. And there was a long time where I was um where I was using she for Molly before she went on the ship and then he and then but then I I didn't like it because I felt like almost through that I had boxed her into something and that then there would have to be a moment or not where she chose to switch back. And I felt like it isn't for this character, for this particular character, it isn't a matter of one or the other. Um and I didn't want to go for because of I'm writing this, you know, in a character's mind in the 18th century, I didn't want to go for a gender neutral pronoun. Um, And also because I didn't really feel that that was right for her. So in the end, I thought I'm going to stick with with she um, and I'm going to try and show through the names and through her sense of relationship with her body, which changes and changing relationship with her um, sexuality and how she relates to others um i'll try and i'll try and um use that to explore the spectrum that she experiences wow yeah i could re- happily talk all day about these things <laughs> as you know um i think the the kind of last thing i j- and again this i'm not going to read it out because uh it one it's a spoiler massive spoiler uh two it will make me cry um and i'm not averse to crying on zoom Absolutely. Uh, you know me, I'm, I like a good cry. Um, but uh, the last sentence of the book, mm. I've just reread it and I'm starting to go. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, OK, I will get through it. <laughs> right. um, and again, this might sound really nerdy from a grammatical point of view, but I know we both have followers who do appreciate this sort of thing. Mm. Um it might be my favourite use of a comma, an, a, a grammatically incorrect use of a comma, perhaps, because it's not an <laughs> Oxford comma. Um, uh, but it might be my favourite use of a comma in all of literature. Hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating. So the last sentence of Wild and True, which, again, I'm not going to read aloud. Um, and don't skip ahead if, you, if you're currently reading a book. Just hurry up and finish reading it. Um, <laughs> But that comma just turns everything. Mm. And it's the kind of tension that runs through 506 pages. Mm. Mm. And I didn't even read. I couldn't actually read. I know this is really sad. I couldn't actually read past the comma initially. Because I was just like, and you know when your eyes flick ahead when you're reading a book 
and you kind of you put your hand on the page because mm -hmm. you don't want to see because your eyes yeah. will read a little bit ahead and they'll start flicking yeah. down. I actually move my hand across the page so slowly and mm. it's just like I actually don't want to read what comes after the comma. Oh. I read after the comma and I just burst into tears. So uh, <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> I'm feeling emotional so thinking about it um, because it that meant a lot to me. Mm. Um, it's, it's about, without spoiling anything too much, it's about a lot of the issues we've talked about around kind of your relationships with um, family figures and all that sort of stuff. And I, I thought, wow, okay. Um, yeah, that was that was quite powerful. So was that, I know you've said with your Bond trilogy, you've kind of written the end already. Mm. Is uh, which I'm um, no absolutely no spoilers, please. Uh, <laughs> but um, have was that something? Was, was it that exact sentence, or was it that it was that it was that idea to finish with? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, first of all, thank you. I think that's one of the nicest things anyone's ever said to me. So thank you very much. Um, and I fight hard for my commas uh, against my copy editor who wants to uh, often simplify my punctuation. <laughs> so thank you. Uh, but that ending that came quite um so endings endings are probably the hardest part of a novel because you've you've kind of got to stick the landing um and you've been gathering this energy all the way through the book and I had a sense of where it would end but I didn't fully know and it was the same actually with testament I didn't fully know there was going to be a big decision for the character at the end and I didn't know which way she was going to sort of fall down and how she would almost um interpret events for herself and what the impact of that would be on her sense of self um and I wrote the ending actually at Agatha Christie's house um speaking of Agatha Christie uh, when I was there doing they have this lovely writing residency where they let writers uh, live in the attic basically um it's a national trust property now and the public come between 10 and 4 I think it is and otherwise you have the house and the estate to yourself and there was one very it was, it was summer there was one very long evening where I sat out um, in, first of all, in the vinery um, and then moved myself to the courtyard outside the stables. And I just felt like I was following my hand to the ending. I was following the pen to the ending rather than, rather than knowing exactly where it was going. Um, and then when I got, when I got that there, I then kept writing. I got to that sentence and kept writing. And then I thought, actually, hang on. I'm writing because I don't want to let go. I've already finished. And so then the editing process was let's take it back to that sentence because that's the ending. Um, and it was a huge sense of um, release and setting something down that I'd been carrying for a long time, but also a sense of loss because these characters had been with me and alive and um, unfixed, unfinished for a long time. And I actually wrote to... Hilary Mantel, who um, was a was a um, amazingly generous supporter of mine, um, after my first novel was published, I wrote to her after I'd finished and said, "I just want to tell you I I did it. I'm I'm done. I finished the book, and I want to thank you for your impact on it and your encouragement." Um, and she wrote back and told me, "I've just finished um, the Mirror and the Light, which was <laughs> a slightly larger achievement, uh, but it was it was very lovely to because we talked about um, that sense both of liberation and elation and loss and grief that comes with an ending. Yeah. Um, so thank you. I'm I'm glad that it that it had that impact. I'm sure other people 
find it just as impactful whatever mm-hmm. their own like kind of life circumstances i think um that you've crafted a book which i know is very personal to you but i always think that the more personal people get and um, people have said some nice things to me over the over the last few years as well the more, I, I always think i'm writing this for me mm. um, but then i kind of think more personal things tend to connect with people more yes yes i think there's and that's really interesting i think that there's a generosity to vulnerability and we aren't necessarily writing from a personal place to be generous, you know, and I think often it is about answering that internal question, like I was saying earlier. Um, but if we're prepared through our creativity or whatever it is that one does in one's walk of life, um, if we're kind of prepared to crack ourselves open a little bit and say, this is this is me without armor, I think that that can invite other people to do the same. And that's what's incredibly precious and I feel incredibly privileged to have it about the author reader relationship when you put something out in the world and it resonates with people and you can end up having very personal talks with people who might be perfect strangers in a signing queue at a festival and then suddenly you have you have this shared moment so at hay festival the other day in the signing queue somebody came up and said um i had short hair when i was young and i can't tell you what this book would have meant to me i wish it had existed then i'm glad it exists now and then we, we kind of talked about similarities in our childhoods and things and um it's just those kinds of moments which which for me is is the whole point it's building relationships and so many like um i'm just thinking my friend natasha and the um uh who i've met through the 007 gb club as well um she it means so much to her that you love um that that you put in double or nothing a, a character who's deaf mm. yeah you don't get deaf people as heroes of stories yes terribly often and I always think it's not it's not box checking you know kind of people away you know the same sorts of people who use woke as a pejorative term will say you know it's a diversity box ticking exercise whatever no it's actually just representing the way reality life is and society is exactly and that's the that's the thing I find um well sad really about people who feel that um if there's any representation beyond themselves in a story it's inauthentic yeah why does the status quo own authenticity? Um, I, I really want to fight against that idea because the the world isn't like that. Yeah. So it's only, you know, stor- stories are immensely powerful and it's worth thinking about why for so long have they reinforced the status quo and why are people so scared about widening them out? What do they stand to lose? And... I think that's that's really the the stem of it. Why why people um, get uncomfortable because they feel at risk. So I just try and I just hope I can invite people into a world with a bit more in it and say it's it's fun in here, you know. 